like to invite you to open your Bibles with me. We are continuing this afternoon our series on the sermon, uh, uh, our series on the life of Abraham. We have basically three incidents in the life of Abraham still to cover, and they take place between Genesis 23 and Genesis 25. We have the death of Sarah, we have the marriage of Isaac, and we have the death of Abraham. We're going to cover the first two this afternoon, and that will cover all of Genesis 23 and 24. At 90 verses, it's a little more than is appropriate to read in this setting. So I'll start reading at Genesis 23, verse 1, and I will summarize um, some lengthy sections, particularly as it relates to the marriage of Isaac, and we'll refer to them in the sermon and, um, but I will just summarize them in the reading. Let's begin reading God's Word, Genesis 23, verse 1. And Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kerjath Arbra, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a strange visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I might bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price, as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, Please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham 
by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please, put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the God, the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son from there. The rest of chapter 24 is an account of the servant going to the land. And you will recall the way in which God miraculously brought Rebekah to his attention. He meets with Rebekah and her family. And at the end of the process, she agrees to go with him. Let's just pick up the last few verses, uh, starting again at verse 63. So the servant and Rebekah are returning back to the land of Canaan. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. May God bless both the reading and the exposition of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we began our series on Abraham, I highlighted for you the framework of the book of Genesis. You may not recall, but the book of Genesis is organized around ten, what we call in Hebrew, toledos. In English, we notice them when they are translated, these are the generations of. So when we open the book of Genesis, we have the creation accounts, and then we have at the very beginning the account of heavens and earth, and then we have on several sections, these are the generations of, and we are introduced to the line of Seth, and then we're introduced to the line of Noah. And the section we are studying now began at Genesis eleven twenty-seven, and it will continue through Genesis 25, verse 11. And it is headed by the heading, these are the generations of Terah. Now, Terah was Abram's father, and we met him in Genesis 11, but he died almost immediately in the beginning of Genesis 12. They left Ur, and they went to Chaldees, 
And the focus of the story has been on Abraham. Terah had many sons. Abraham had many sons, as we'll see even more. There are more sons that are not talked about at length in the Scriptures. But the focus is on Abraham and Isaac, on the promised line, on the promised seed. When we met Abraham, he was in his early 70s. And you'll recall he was a moon worshiper in Ur, and he received a radical call to go with his family. And Terah and Abraham and the entire entourage left Ur. They went to Haran. Ur di or Terah died, and he ultimately traveled on to Israel, the promised land. It was about a 6,000-kilometer trip. When he was in the promised land, very shortly after, a famine came, you may recall, and Abraham, in unfaithfulness, forgetting the promises of God, went to Egypt to try to find food, a 1,200-kilometer round trip. As we've been following Abraham to date, we have followed him through what is, in modern terms, Iraq, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, Jordan, and Jordan. He's traveled following the commands of the Lord and at times disobeying the commands of the Lord and being called back. He's traveled through in, throughout the entire then known world. And you'll recall there have been a lot of dramatic incidents in the life of Abraham that we paid attention to. In Genesis 14, Cato Lo Ormor, the superpowers of the day, you'll remember, came and took lots into captivity, and Abraham went and chased after him, and the Lord miraculously delivered Abraham, or delivered Lot into the hands of Abraham. We've had the dramatic covenant ceremonies. We've had God coming to visit with Abraham. And last time we followed Abraham to Mount Moriah, where he was asked to sacrifice Isaac, the son of the promise. And yet as we go through, even though Abraham's life is very different than any of yours and certainly of mine, one of the things that certainly has struck me as we have gone through this passage is how ordinary, how relatable his journey of faith has been. Yes, in God's promises, providence, Abraham has faced a life quite unlike, I suspect, any of us expect to have. And yet, isn't it true that Abraham's faith is one of weakness, of believing and then falling? Eight times we've had God come to repeat the covenant promises to Abraham, to remind him of what it was. Abraham's conversion was not simply a call in Ur of the Chaldees. No, it's a lifelong trusting in the promises of God. And then when through backsliding, he falls away, being reminded again and again of God's promises. In Genesis 15, 6, we paid attention to the fact that when God came with the covenant, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. A text from Genesis that's picked up in several places in the New Testament, which Paul uses as the basis of the book of Romans, for explaining the doctrine of the justification by faith alone. And yes, even though Abraham's life is extraordinary and historic, 
In many ways, he faces the ordinary things of life. God's promises are not a moment of time. They are a way of life. And it's a lifelong lesson Abraham had to learn. Now, children, you may recall that last time we had the Bible introduce Abraham going to Mount Moriah as God testing Abraham. You might remember I said there are usually two reasons for a test. One is so that the teacher can discover what the student has learned. But we know that that was not the reason God had to test Abraham. God knew perfectly well what was in Abraham's heart. And so the reason God was testing Abraham is so that Abraham might learn the lessons of faith that he needed to carry through his own journey. You see, faith... And the lessons we have are not just experiences for the moment. They are gifts that God gives us to deal with the challenges of life. The question Abraham had to learn in the offering of Isaac, being asked to offer Isaac, was whether or not he believed God not just with his head, but also with his will and with his heart. You see, faith is not an escape from life. It's a preparation for life and for death. And as we turn to Genesis 23 this afternoon, we meet Abraham, 137 years old. We know because we can peek ahead that he's going to die at 175. So he has 38 years of life left, but he doesn't know that. And what is told to us of the last 38 years of Abraham's life is something that we certainly can relate to. It's the death of his spouse. It's the sorting out of his estate. It's the marriage of his son and a preparation for his own death. The ordinary events of life that everyone, you and I, will have to face at one time or another. This afternoon, I want to focus with you on these two chapters under the theme, Life's Pilgrimage Shaped by God's Promises. Life's Pilgrimage Shaped by God's Promises. We're first of all going to see that it provides hope through Sarah's death and burial. Secondly, it reaffirms Abram's place before God and neighbor. And finally, it offers hope for future generations. The death of Sarah. Sarah has been part of the story right from we met Abraham in Genesis 11. And for the 50 plus years that we have been following Abraham and Sarah, she has been present throughout. Sometimes a factor in the story, but we haven't heard that much from her. She was already married when we were introduced in Genesis 12. So her and Abraham at this point are a married couple for over 60 years. Sarah is a woman of faith. How do we know that? Well, the scriptures tell us. Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and seek the Lord. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. 1 Peter 3. This is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. 
You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Hebrews 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Yes, the scriptures are abundantly clear that Sarah is a woman of faith. And so what we have in our passage here is the account of a death of a believer. Now notice with me, the text doesn't spend a lot of time talking about Sarah. In a sort of -of matter-of-fact way, in verses 1 and 2, it announces the fact that Sarah died. Indeed, when believers die, there is not much to say. They have gone on to be with the Lord. Their future, the death of a believer for them is gain. And our text turns the focus not to Sarah, but to those who are left behind to mourn her passing. Do you notice in verse 2? Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. There are two, two words here used for Abraham's grief. The first word, he went in to mourn, is sort of the, the word that would have been used in Hebrew to talk about the death, the mourning at a time of a funeral. Sort of the official mourning, the expected mourning that you have. And what accompanied that in that culture? But the second word translated in English, weep, is actually an unusual word for this. And it communicates a depth, an intensity of weeping. The grief of family members, even at the death of a loved one, of a believer in the Lord, is real. And the scriptures do not present it as if we should somehow piously pass over mourning and grieving the death of loved ones. Even if we know with confidence that they have been to go with the Lord, that does not mean it's inappropriate for us. No, in fact, we have the example of Abraham the patriarch. Yes, Abraham has faced great enemies in life. We followed him through great challenges, but we've never previously seen him weeping. But here our text tells us that he wept. And it uses a it uses a verb of intensity. Why do we cry when loved ones die? Well, part of that obviously is the loss of relationships, that sense of loss, the empty place that is there. But indeed, biblically speaking, it is appropriate to cry, to grieve at the time of death. And why is that? Well, death is not natural. We were not created to die. We were created to live. It was the breaking of the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden with Adam that caused death to come into the world. Death is the wages of sin. And when death comes, we are faced with ultimate questions. Oh yes, believers can take comfort that their loved ones have gone to the Lord, and yet there is a sense of loss. 
even our Savior Jesus, knowing full well that Lazarus was going to be raised up from the tomb, nonetheless, when he came face to face with death, and he stared at the tomb in which Lazarus was, what do we read? He wept. Oh, sometimes I fear we think it's more pious to hold back tears, to stoically say that we're above the pain, it's all gone, the, per- the person we've loved has gone to be with the Lord. But the Scriptures don't ask us of that. No, they paint a very honest picture of the reality of death. And even when a child of God, even when Abraham faces death, he's brought to tears. Oh, Abraham did not grieve as those without hope. He believed the promises, and that's going to be made abundantly clear even as he arranges for Sarah's funeral. Yet nonetheless, he weeps. Because when he stares at Sarah's body, that is dead. When we look at the tomb, we see the results of sin. We see the brokenness of the world. Abraham wept. That's not all he did. We have 15 verses that perhaps as we read through it struck you as somewhat surprising. Why does the scripture spend so much time on the details of the purchase of Sarah's tomb? We have the purchase of a burial plot. Abraham is in Hebron. He doesn't own any land there. Although he is well established in the area, he's not really a stranger. He's been living and moving around following his flocks. We know from the context he is a powerful man, a successful business person. He owns lots of flocks. And even though his his settlement moves around, it is a substantial settlement. Abraham is one of the rich men in his area. But he does not own, he does not have deed or title as was customary to the Hittites who at that time occupied the land around Hebron. He did not have title and he needed permission to bury Sarah in a tomb. You may have noticed that in the passage we read together they went through three rounds of negotiation. The locals, seeing that Sarah had died and seeing Abraham's grief, come to him first and offer him and say, you don't need to worry about it. Pick any tomb you want. You're free to bury Sarah in the tomb of your choice. See that in verse 6. Abraham responds in verses 7 to 9. He says, no, I can't do that. I I need to buy a tomb. I need to purchase a tomb. And if there's any tomb that I want, it happens to be the cave of Machpelah at the end of the field that Ephron owns. And then in verse 11, we we have the encounter where Ephron is brought in the city gate. We have a very public negotiation. And ultimately, Abraham buys the tomb from Ephron for 400 shekels of silver. And the deed is transferred in an official legal ceremony, the details of which are provided. There are two things to, to note 
three things actually to note here regarding this. First of all, even in death, Abraham conducts his business honorably in a way that brings him a good reputation among his neighbors. Did you notice as we read even the details? I don't have time. We could spend a lot. We could spend an entire sermon looking at the Hittite business procedures that are outlined in this. There are times when they're sitting and standing. In verse 7, Abraham rose and bowed. In verse 12, Abraham bowed. All of this was part of a process of how appropriately to do business in that culture. And we see the fact that Abraham doesn't come and say, this is what I want. But he adapts to the customs of business of the culture in which he's in. We also see that Abraham is very just and fair. He's offered the tomb for free, but he's, he knows that he's a rich man. On the one hand, the Hittites don't want to take advantage of Abraham's grief. And out of sympathy, offer him the fact that you can have whatever tomb you want for free. On the other hand, Abraham knows that he's one of the wealthier men in the neighborhood and he's not going to take advantage of their charity. He says, for the full price, let Ephron give it to me in the presence as property for the burying place. But you see, there's something more going on here than just the conduct of business and the necessity of burying Sarah. This property is in the land of Canaan. If you notice in verses 2 and 19, that's highlighted for us. The land of Canaan is the promised land, which has been promised to Abraham throughout his entire pilgrimage so far. And God has promised that he and his the succeeding generations are going to receive the land. But as yet, at the time of Sarah's passing, he doesn't own one square inch of it. What's telling as we go through the passage is the emphasis on the deed, on the acquisition. Four times we have Hebrew words that include the concept of ownership. Not just using the tomb, but owning the tomb. And great detail is expressed. And why is this? Why is the purchase of land so important to Abraham? Well, could it be that especially at the time of Sarah's death, he needs to be reminded of the promises of God and that God is true to his word. You see, death is the wages of sin. But what is unique about the Christian gospel from every other religion in the world is that the gospel doesn't cause us to escape sin. The Christian gospel is not about escape from evil. It is about the redemption of evil. The ground of Machpelah is not a, simply a place for Sarah's body to decompose and wait. The cave of Machpelah, the tomb of Machpelah, is a sign of promise. Every square inch of creation is going to be redeemed. Yes, the dead will rise in Christ. 
But even the cemetery will become part of the new heaven and the new earth where God's people will live with Him. Isn't that why we stand beside the graveside? Staring into the grave with the coffin on top of it in a way that none of us can really understand. None of us can really understand with our own minds how the process exactly is going to work. And yet we recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Abraham is getting this cave as a sign of God's promise. God will give the land to Abraham. And his generations will indeed inherit the promises. It's interesting the phrase machpelah means double. Commentators are divided in terms of how to interpret it. Why is that so significant? Is it double praise or is it a double grave? Is it a double blessing? What is interesting is the, the cave of Machpelah becomes not only the tomb for Sarah, but also of Abraham. As we'll read in Genesis 25, 5. It will become the tomb for Isaac and Rebekah. As we'll read in Genesis 49, 31. It will become the tomb of Jacob. As we'll read in Genesis 50. Abraham goes about the business of purchasing the plot in a way that conducts himself prudently, justly, courteously in the sight of the Hittites, in a way that reflects his grief, but also a way that reflects his hope, that indeed God's promises are real. And he doesn't do so in private. He does so very publicly, doesn't he? Did you notice throughout that this all, he took care that witnesses were there. Verse 16, when the price had been agreed, he, he counted out the money in the presence of witnesses according to the weights that were current among the merchants. God's people are called to deal with the duties and business of life and death, but God doesn't leave them alone through such times. No, we don't expect voices or special revelations from God, but we have his promises confirmed even in the circumstances of grief. What comfort is there for God's people even today from this account of Abraham burying his wife, Sarah? Indeed, there are many among us who've also stood at the side of a tomb, of a spouse, of a parent, of a loved one. But we have already in Abraham a sense of God's promise that at such times we can believe the promises of God and know that they are reliable. And we can take comfort from that. Abraham did. And how many of us can testify of God's goodness also that even during the times of grief, God provides special confirmation of His grace and promise in our lives. All of which brings us to our second point. And that is, the story reaffirms the place between, before God and neighbor. 
Did you notice as we read in verse 4 how Abraham views himself and portrays himself in all of this? He says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Now, was that true? Had we gone around Hebron in that day, everybody would have known who Abraham was. They would have known him not as a sojourner, but as the rich man. One of the leading people. No, he was not a Hittite. He had come in as a sojourner, a nomad, but that was not untypical for that day as agriculture was significant and Rather than having a permanent place, people moved around often to follow their flocks so they could be fed. And we actually see that in verse 5. The Hittites answered and said, no, you're not. You're a prince of God among us. So why does Abraham say this? I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. Oh, I think we have insight here in terms of the posture of faith of where Abraham has come in his maturity. We have followed Abraham, understanding and hearing the promises of God, being tested in various ways, but what we now see is a mature faith. And Abraham understands his place in the world and before God. But we have already followed the extraordinary way in which God had to come to him as the El Shaddai, the Almighty One and renamed Abram to Abraham, father of many. Isaac's an extraordinary child. Now we're going to learn in the next chapter that Abraham actually had another wife, Keturah, from whom he had many other children. And if we add up the math, even though we're not told until the very end of Abram's life, it's evident the only way the math makes sense is that Keturah has been Abraham's wife for quite some time, and he's had many children with her at this stage. We'll, learn, we'll cover that in our next sermon. And yet it is true that Isaac is an extraordinary child. We're told in Hebrews eleven twelve, There from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of the seashore. Abraham had been the recipient of promise. He was the friend of God. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him for righteousness. And he was called God's friend. We could go to Abraham and he could tell us stories that no few other saints throughout history could tell us. But facing mortality, facing the loss of his wife and the closest, his closest friend Sarah, Abraham's abundantly obvious, honest with us. This is not my home. I'm a stranger here. I'm a sojourner. Oh yes, he was looking for this promised land of Hebron and he goes out of his way to get title, earthly title for it. But he wasn't putting all his hope on that piece of paper that said he owned a piece of the land. No, Hebrews tell us that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And that's why I think it's very important to remind ourselves that the story of Abraham is in the Bible, not just as an exemplary story that we look at Abraham and say, oh, if we could only be more like Abraham. But no, we need to read the story of Abraham in the framework of the book of Genesis, the Toledus. These are the generations. 
Abraham understands he's part of a much bigger story. There were generations before and there will be generations after. And Abraham understands it's not all about Abraham. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. No, God has created the world with a purpose and he is gathering his church until the end of time when the bride of Christ will be gathered for communion with him. When Abraham says at the death of his wife, I'm a stranger and a sojourner, he is putting forward his faith on the city to come and communion with God. Ten times in the book of Genesis we read, these are the generations. Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem. Now we've come to Abraham. But what's the theme of Abraham's life? Well, he is the recipient of the promise of God. Eight times we've had God come to him and give him the threefold promise. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a land. And in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we've considered how that promise points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, after Genesis 23 comes Genesis 24 and the rest of history all the way to Matthew 1, where we have the accounting and when we think of the Bible and we think of the story of history, children, it's helpful to think of an hourglass. It starts very wide at the bottom, at the top. Adam, all Adam's seed, and then Seth, and then Noah, and then Terah, and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. You fast forward to Matthew 1, and what do you have? The end of these generations, you have the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, like the hourglass that comes very wide and focuses on Christ, what happens? It goes out, go you into all the world, preach baptizing and making disciples. And the church will be gathered from all tribes and nations. And so, God is working through. And Abraham, even though I doubt he could articulate this, he did not have the blessings of all of God's revealed word as you and I do. Nonetheless, he understood something of that. And he doesn't say, here I am, a rich man in Hebron. Here I am, a special recipient of God's promises. No, he says, here I am, a stranger and a sojourner on the earth. Well, we have told here, in narrative form in the life of, Eph of Abraham, we have almost identically told by Paul as he describes the way of salvation in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in trespasses and sins following the course of this world. That's how we met Abraham, didn't we? A moon worshiper in Ur. Ephesians 2.4, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Abram was called of God, and God entered into covenant with him. And Abram believed, and it was counted to him for righteousness. He was made alive. He was made a friend of God. Ephesians 2.19, so you're no more strangers and aliens, but you become fellow citizens with the saints and with the members of the household of God. Abram says to the Hittites at Hebron, I'm a stranger and a foreigner among you. Why? Because he's looking forward to his citizenship together with Sarah and all the saints in the presence of God.
God provides the cave of Machpelah, the land of Canaan, the promised land, and it's now Abraham's legal possession. And yet he takes that possession with even a bigger picture in mind. When Israel was to get the land, in the book of Leviticus we read, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. You're just aliens and tenants. Leviticus 25, 23. The psalmist writes, I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger, as all my fathers were. Are you and I strangers in this world? Has our faith matured to the maturity of Abram's faith here in our passage? In which we understand that whatever material possessions we have, we are just traveling through. And the Lord will take home at various times our spouses, our loved ones. And yes, we will grieve, and it's right to grieve. But we will do so as strangers and pilgrims looking forward to the promises of God. Verses 17 to 20. The field of Ephraim, which was within Machpelah, which was before Mamre. The field and the cave was in it. The trees that were in the field which were in all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham. Abraham now owned the cemetery. And after that, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the field of the cave of Machpelah before Mamre in the land of Canaan. And so the field and the cave that is in it indeed were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a burial place. The story doesn't end here. Abraham has 37 more years to live. And as we turn to Genesis 24, we see that the time of mourning and grief and honoring Sarah, the intensity of that continued and Abraham moved on. But do notice with me, as we'll notice at the very end, the context for Isaac seeking a wife is the memory of his mother Sarah. Genesis 24 ends that Isaac marries Rebekah in the tent of his mother and he took comfort. Yes, the Lord provides comfort through spiritual means and through looking forward to the city that is to come, but also through temporal means by making provisions so that some of those empty places aren't replaced. Isaac still misses Sarah at the end of the passage. And yet the Lord in his providence provides comfort for Isaac and Abraham, even in the course of carrying out his covenant promises. Genesis 24 has 67 verses, and I'm going to skip over most of it. I'm trusting that most of you are familiar with the story of the servant, we're not told the servant's name. Often, often we think of it as Eliezer, and that might very well be the case, but we can't know for certain. You see in verses 1 through 9, Abraham provides the servant with the charge to go and to find a wife for Isaac. Knowing that the seed of Isaac was one thing for Abram and Sarah to have the miracle child, but they needed grandchildren. They needed that line to continue. Verses 10 through 27, the, soldier, the servant goes on, meets 
at the well, meets Rebecca. Verses 28 through 53, he meets with the family, and in each case, he re-explains his mission. Verses 54 through 58, Rebecca agrees to go back with him to become his wife. And then at the end, we have the story of the marriage. Now, many have used this passage as a framework for Christian romance. In fact, in The Messenger this month, you will see that they started a series on relationships using Genesis 24. I'm going to skip the details here. But let me make just a couple of observations regarding Abraham's concern in this matter. At the beginning of Genesis 24, notice that Abraham gives to his servants two non-negotiables as the servant is sent to find a wife for Isaac. First of all, he says, do not take a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanites. But secondly, you're to go to a different land, you're to go to find a wife for Abraham, not from the Canaanites, but she has to come back here because this is the promised land. Now you may look, as you read through that, you may wonder, why, why does Abraham make it so difficult? He's, he's a stranger, he's moving around. What's the big deal? But what we have here is evidence that Abraham is viewing this matter with a view to God's promises. He's anticipating God's laws against intermarriage, as we'll have them in Deuteronomy 7. Laws that remain true for the New Testament church. 1 Corinthians 7.39 reminds us that we are to marry in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6.14, be not unequally yoked. But it highlights especially Abram's trust in God's promises. There was no way that Abram could have known exactly how this was all going to work out in God's province. But he trusts. When the servant seeks clarification in chapter 24, 7, Abram answers, The Lord will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife from my son from there. God will provide. I don't know how. But God's going to provide. And indeed, the entire expedition is shaped by prayer and dependence on God. In verse 12, the servant arrives and he comes to the well. What does he do? He goes in prayer. Oh, Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. Show steadfast love to Abram. He meets Rebekah. Rebekah takes him home to her family. And what do we read in verse 26? Even before he addresses the family, he comes in. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. And then he proceeds to tell the family of Rebekah how God in his providence brought them together. And indeed the story is so moving and so convincing that Laban and Bethuel answer him in verse 15. It's clear this thing has come from the Lord. Take her. Let her be the wife of your master's son, even as the Lord has spoken it. What does Abram say? Does he thank them? No, as soon as Abram's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. Oh, the entire exercise was carried out with seriousness and solemnity. Abraham had taken his most senior servant, the one who had charge of everything that he had, we read together in the first few verses the, 
the oath and the symbolism. He had the servant place his hand under his thigh, under his robe. The entire incident seems very uncomfortable to us. But most commentators reflect on the fact that by having the servant place his hand on the area of the body connected with male virility, the fact is that he's reconfirming his belief in God's promises that indeed his seed would be as the stars of the sky. And so the story concludes with Rebecca coming home with the servant, seeing Isaac. And the passage concludes, Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebecca, she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Oh, you see, the marriage of Isaac and the promise of offspring is not separated from the death of Sarah. These are the generations of Terah. Abraham is a pilgrim, he's a mature Christian, but his accomplishment is not what he achieves in the land of Israel, but looking forward to that city whose maker and foundation is God. Well, let's conclude with a few observations of practical application. We've already noted the significance of this passage on how appropriate it is for believers to grieve the loss of loved ones. It's appropriate and it's necessary. And no, this passage is not intended as an instruction manual or a formula on how to grieve. We can take great comfort. Those who are are and have grieved, or perhaps those who will come to a time of grief, we can take great comfort in the examples of faithful saints who've grieved a godly grief. But Genesis wasn't written just for us to spiritualize. It's not just an instruction manual. It's real history. It tells the important story of God's plan in history. I've already talked about the hourglass. And in this passage, we need to see the promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Had Isaac not got married and had offspring, humanly speaking, the line would have cut off and Jesus would not have been born. But God is faithful to his promise. The land and the seed are preserved and God will be true to his promise even through the trials of his people. Oh, these are not happy days for Abraham and Isaac. These are two chapters that are surrounded, that are framed by their grief at the loss of Sarah. Their hearts are heavy, but God's promises are true, and he carries them through. And God promises to do that for his people even today. Oh, God needed God, Abraham needed God's sovereign intervention to save him when he was a stranger to grace, when he was the Ur moon worshiper. He needed God to spare him from his backsliding and faithlessness that saw him flee Egypt during famine. He needed God to prosper and protect him in spite of his unfair dealings in the court of the, of the king of Egypt as well as Abimelech at Gerar. He needed God to sustain him when his faith was tested on Mount Moriah but he also needed God to carry him through the death of his beloved Sarah and to enable him to go forward in faith. And on every chapter of Abraham's life, God provides. 
And that same God comes to you this afternoon. If you are here as an unbeliever, if you are listening to this just as a story, but say, I really don't know or have any relationship with the God of Abraham, I'm here to tell you this afternoon that the seed that came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the only Savior of the world. Believe in him. And it will be counted to you for righteousness. But for you who are children of God, perhaps some of you this afternoon still going through grief and sad times, able to identify with Abraham in our text, weeping at the loss and at the hurt in your heart. Remember this, he's faithful to his promise. And the Savior who would weep at the tomb of Lazarus, he knew the pain that Abraham and Isaac felt. And he provided them strength to carry through. And he proves that even in the dark times, his promises are sure. He enables them to get up and take the next steps by faith to bury Sarah in a land they did not own property and to find a wife for Isaac when none seemed immediately available. Oh, they would not have been able to tell you the whole story in advance, but living by faith, day by day, trusting in God's promises, they too were able to carry forward, looking forward to the day when with Sarah and the other saints, they would no longer be strangers and pilgrims, but they would be citizens of that city whose builder and maker is God. You may be familiar with the story of John Newton, the slave trader, lived a very difficult life, and we know him best of that song in which he speaks of God's amazing grace. But Newton himself was also able to speak of God's provision through all of his life. I close with a few words of a poem that Newton wrote. Though dark be my way, since he is my guide, tis mine to obey, and it is his to provide. Though cisterns be broken and creatures all fail, the word he has spoken shall surely prevail. His love in times past forbids me to think that he'll leave me at last or trouble let me sink. No, each sweet Ebenezer I have in review, it confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. Why should I complain of want or distress, temptation or pain? He told me no less. The heirs of salvation I know from his word, through much tribulation, will follow their Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we come, having gone through two chapters that on the one hand, seem difficult. When we read them at first, it seems like 90 verses of negotiations over a plot and a remarkable story in which you brought Rebecca to Isaac so many thousands of years ago. But yet, as we dig into your word, we see that it's a word intended for us today, a word that's intended also to remind us that you are a faithful God, true to your promises and true to your word. That as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God who ultimately carried out the divine plan so that the Lord Jesus Christ would come as a sacrifice for sin. O oh Lord, we pray, will you also comfort us by this word. Work with your Holy Spirit. Apply it to each of us as we have need. Grant that as we go from this place, Lord, we may see you, say it was good to be here, for the Lord was in our midst. Forgive that which was sinful and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.